Um, I, I probably will have to keep this part off the podcast because it is privileged information. But just today, about two hours ago, the Senate um, committee in Mississippi or the Senate floor in Mississippi passed basically a Tennessee bill plus the Yags um, with no additional uh, no additional uh, prohibition on those Yags. So basically, they do lumps and bumps, uh, Yag capsulotomies. And the only downside is that the, there's a, they've ha- agreed to a prohibition for 10 years. And the House uh, has said they will pass it. The big part is, and you got to keep this under wraps until it's officially passed, but ophthalmology um, has agreed to that. So ophthalmology has agreed not to battle it. So I think that puts, I think it puts ophthalmology in a pretty precarious position to say it was okay in one state. We agreed to it in one state, but we're not going to agree to it in others. I think that's, um, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to help us a ton, but I think it helps us some. Yeah. So stay tuned. Yeah. The only caveat to that is, you know, you can't trust them. Uh, they agreed, they agreed to sign off on one of our bills in Texas and then voted it down on the Senate floor. <laughs> so yeah. You can't trust the guys. No, that's that's why I'm saying I, I gotta wait until it's, you know, I'm hoping that that it goes. It's got to go back to the house because it was a slightly different, but but um, that you know by the end of, hopefully by the end of tomorrow, it's a done deal. That'd wow, be good. Be Definitely by the end of the, next week. One more to one more to add to the list that, you know, yeah, a, you know we're the stepchild of optometry right now because we're Texas. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that we either have the worst bill or New York has the worst bill, but it's one of the two. Uh, but we're at the dead bottom of the heap right now. So it, well, I'll tell you, New York thinks they've got the worst bill. Yeah, <laughs> and they maybe you know is it because you have the if, is it because you have to have you know daddy sign off on your glaucoma cases at the that's, beginning? Is that why? That, yeah, that's a big deal. And our you know our orals are so limited. Uh, we have, we have basically have antibiotics. That's really all it boils down to. Uh, and those are only for 10 days. So, you know, is us having the sign off on globe come worse or them having no orals worse? I don't know. They're both terrible. Yeah. 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 Speaking of that, I mean, it, you know, it kind of takes me back. I think I've, maybe I mentioned this to you before. I can't remember, but, um, one of the first times I recall actually seeing you talk, was I was in Oklahoma and you were uh, discussing the your approach to managing uh, anterior basement membrane dystrophy and recurrent corneal erosions with polishing, mm-hmm. and um, and I've used that. I mean, that was probably ten years ago, and I've used that countless times in my practice. And I would say it's it's almost curative for those yeah. patients. Yeah, uh, in, in the vast majority of cases, hundred percent. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Joe Deloche from Practice Compliance Solutions. And we talked about uh, HIPAA, we talked about OSHA, we talked about billing and coding compliance. And I think my take home is that really, as doctors, we're kind of motivated primarily by ethics and then secondarily by revenue and then probably by fear. And so when I think about OSHA and HIPAA, my motivation in my practice is to, you know, be able to ethically take care of my patients primarily, and then um, and then make sure that 
I don't have to worry about whether or not if the if if the HIPAA police or the OSHA police come in and and audit my business um, that we're going to survive that that audit. And so um, that's a lot of what we talked about. It was a fun conversation, and it gave me some things to think about. And I hope it does for you as well. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of Cooper Vision's Biofinity Torque. The Biofinity Torque Multifocal combines that torque design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal Lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. Check out the show notes and link to Cooper Vision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing how how often I'll talk about that. And I always I always mention that where I learned it from, and um, and I, I I think how many docs are really doing this? And it, it brings up the point of you know Tad. Ted McElroy and, and uh, Paula Jamian had a conversation uh, on on their pod on Ted's podcast um, and just recently and Paul made the comment which I thought was really astute and I actually agree with him when you look at the data is the number of patients or the number of doctors that actually fully utilize their scope of practice as it is really is small unfortunately yeah yeah why do you think that is we're still off air right. No, no, we're gonna be live. I mean, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep this important. This portion. Here's here's my thought. And I, I guess because um, I think this is important for our members to listen to or yeah. for our, our listeners to hear. But I also understand that you know while you're wringing your hands right now as well, because I am. Well, no, um, I, I really don't. But I, I think just, it exists. I think it exists across any profession. Like if you look at ophthalmology, you could say the same thing I about know. them, right? They okay. they use you know they have all this surgical training. Most of them are doing cataract surgery. So. You know, I, I've made the statement before that the older you get, you know, the more your mouth moves that maybe it shouldn't because it's like, you know, at, at, after 40 years in the profession, if someone doesn't like me, no one ever like me, but you do get more outspoken, you know, uh, at that point. And I've always said, you know, honestly, to me, my opinion, one of the biggest reasons we have this problem is because traditional routine eye care is just too dramatically easy and lucrative. And so there's not, you know, we've, we've preached that, you know, we're going to start losing the product market and blah, 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 blah. But it hasn't happened to the point that it's really dramatically impacting too many people. So they don't believe, you know, we need to replace it. Um, I think that's one of the major reasons right there. Um, and the second one, and I, I don't mind if this goes out to, to anybody, I just don't <laughs> think the schools push medical optometry at the level they should. Uh, I think it's still too focused on routine, which is important. Obviously that's the backbone of our profession, 
But if we are going to implement change in the profession and grow it into a true medical profession, it's got to start with education and it's got to start with the schools saying, this is what you need to be able to do in a very competent manner and actually allow them to do that in the clinical rotations. Uh, So I think that's probably my answer to the two reasons I just don't think people latch on uh, to it. I could add a third and say that I think there's a lingering, this may be hard. And as you know, once you do it, you realize it's, you know, it's kind of like the keratectomy for the recurrent coronal mm-hmm. erosion. Seems like a really hard thing to do. And it's a little techy, but anybody can do it. It's yeah. just a matter of practice. And that's, you know, no surgeon or MD or any initials after anybody's name. They didn't just you know, this just wasn't gifted them from above. It's all about practice. Um, so I think, you know, those things are all changing slowly, but probably not at the rate. A lot of the more progressive thinkers would like for it to change, but I do think it's changing. I think the, the, to your point, if I were going to add my perspective on it, cause I, I don't, where I would disagree with you in terms of the, the schools and, and their teaching and you, you get to see a lot. I mean, you, you're, you, you spent a lot of time training students and residents, but my, um, my perspective is more related to the training and teaching about the value of those services to a system overall. And when students get out of school, they have the, they have the clinical acumen to manage those conditions really well, but they, they don't know how to get paid for them. Yeah. And so oh, and I, would, they, I would totally agree with you on that. Absolutely. Um, the curriculum is there and with good rotations, the opportunity for practice is there. But again, you know, it's, if you don't put that into the core of the being of an optometrist, they do graduate without the appreciation of this is what we really can do. So I think we're really saying the same thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the, um, so so how do we over, I guess, how do you overcome that? I mean, you, you've pretty much spent what, 30, 40 years in clinical practice. Plus 40. you've 40 plus you've kind of, uh, you have these other hats where you're, you're sort of a cutting edge, you know, disease based clinic. Plus you have this, this realm of being able to help doctors understand their value and also watch for potential pitfalls within where they might, they might fall in terms of compliance issues. So how does that all pl- come into play in terms of helping the profession continue to integrate the, you know, our ability to manage patients? Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to not to downgrade the schools at all, but it, it really has to start there. Um, and things like, um, uh, you know, I, I've always said that, you know, the one thing I think we don't graduate optometrists with is the concept that I am a doctor, you know, it, and a doctor is a doctor and a doctor does certain things, says certain things, you know, operates in a certain way. And I think a lot of just the historical nature of optometry was we want to be different than medicine. And that core is kind of hard to undo. Um, so I think it always has to start there. It always, it's kind of like it has to start at home. Well, home is our education. So it has to start there. Um, and then I think there's a lot of factors out there that are stopping the profession from growing. And here I go getting in trouble again. But, um, you know, the more, you know, 
XYZ best or this model or that model type thing out there. It, it degrades what we are as a profession, in my opinion. Um, and it stops, you know, a large group of people growing together. And that's not going to stop, um, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's an obstacle to growth. Um, but I think the biggest thing to me from what I see, both from a student level and from my colleagues level, is just we need a different understanding that that optometry is no different than being a pediatrician, no different than being a cardiologist. I mean, we are doctors in a healthcare system and we have to operate and, you know, do certain things a certain way. And that includes a more complex type of practice than what we maybe the army we signed up for. It includes things like compliance with laws and, you know, having to jump through the HIPAA hoops and having to do all this stuff that we have to do. Uh, because that's part of being a healthcare provider. Do you think that there is a component to it that when, when it comes down to it, and in a lot of cases, the, one of the differences between many optometrists and the, the places that they practice are being, when they're seeing some of these things like, like HIPAAs and like the different OSHA compliances, all that sort of thing, that is not what they not the way they signed up for in a sense that they don't want to really manage that, but it's becoming more prevalent. And so where, whereas medical doctors and they're sort of existing in this realm where they don't have to worry about some of that stuff. It's like, that's taken care of by the nurses or by the OSHA managers or by the, the HIPAA compliance officers that are being managed in their large corporations. Cause I don't know about in Texas, but in, in Nebraska, there are very few independent ophthalmologists. I mean, what I mean by that is that are not in groups. You know, yeah. ophthalmology by and large isn't owned by a large uh, hospital system, but like like a family practice physician is, or by like uh, pediatricians are typically in Nebraska. But but they are they're rarely by themselves, and so they they sort of get to like offload all of that stuff where they don't have to think about it. Is there a deterrence to integrating all that stuff, all those kind of new treatment options and uh, managing all this other disease because of, of the perception that compliance is so challenging where they're just like, I don't want to mess with that. I'm going to let somebody else do it. And then they just kind of dump it on somebody else. Or is that a, is that a, um, is that a reason that people are kind of abandoning private practice to allow somebody else to manage it where they're just either going in with somebody else or selling their practice altogether? Yeah. God, that was a, Big question. There's a lot of stuff. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not good stuff. at small questions. Um, well, see, I think part of it, I always talk about, it's crazy. It's a crazy statement. But I think when we go into some kind of profession, some type of genetic makeup drives us in that direction. Optometrists, by their very nature, are independent little cusses. And it's kind of part of what drives us into the profession of optometry, which historically and still to this day is predominantly a bunch of independent little cusses. And because of that, we don't have, we have to manage everything. And so we, we don't have that, that fallback that you, as you discussed, where we're in a, you know, nine person or a 19 person ophthalmology practice. And we have a compliance officer that does everything. And we don't even know how to spell HIPAA or what it is because someone else is taking care of it for us. But, you know, the vast majority of practicing optometrists in private practice are in a small group practice or in an individual practice. And the bottom line is they have to handle it themselves. So the independent person, always their first nature is, I can do this. 
and you can't. I mean, you just can't. It is too complicated. Uh, it, it's not so much that it's too complicated, it's just too big. And no one has time to do this. So they, they have to outsource to somebody to help them out or they play the head in the sand game, uh, which by most all the compliance companies' estimates is still over 50% of the profession. In, in, so explain that a little bit. When you talk about head in the sand game and you say it's 50% of the profession, yeah. does that mean all regulations? Is there specific regulations that people are missing commonly where they can just say, do this and do that? And it's easy? No, no, I don't think all, I'm, I was specifically referring to compliance because that got brought up. So, and, yeah. and I would have to say that's specifically related to HIPAA because that's what the, the gathering of the HIPAA companies have in all together felt like it's probably greater than 50%. If you talk about OSHA, it's greater than that. Um, So there is a large, I'm I'm just going to put my head in the sand and hope nothing happens. And I've, I've said this from the podium many times. The reality is it's, it's nothing but a gamble. It's like insurance. Uh, You're buying insurance against something bad happening to you. And some people are riskier than others. And uh, it's so a. Tell me uh, what you've seen. So tell me what you've seen then in terms of um, like the bad. Like I, I am. Some people are motivated by horror stories, right? Yeah. Tell me a horror story <laughs> in somebody you've worked with. Uh, horror story. Or to try to dig them out of a horror story. Yeah, horror story. Um, and this is this is unfortunately a common situation. Um, privacy for patients in a situation of uh, step parents or the new the the divorced daddy's hot girlfriend, which is what happened in this case. So we have the the new girlfriend bring the kids in for their care. Number one, she has no healthcare privacy or she has no healthcare authority. Number one. Uh, number two, she has no authority for privacy rights for the kids. Um, she signs all this stuff, you know, I'm going to sign my HIPAA acknowledgement and yes, I can do this. And yes, you can file your insurance to the VSP, blah, blah, blah. The very upset ex-wife uh, finds out about this because she's actually the one that holds the vision plan. So she finds out, uh, files a suit against the doctor for two things. Number one. HIPAA privacy violation for both children. Number two, child molestation, because the doctor had no authority to touch these kids. So how often does that happen? It happens enough that that we literally had to change the acknowledgement in our company to protect against that, because this is something that happens now. This is the only one where I know child molestation charges have been filed, but HIPAA violation charges are not uncommon. So it's just a little thing that you have to protect yourself from. Uh, there's you a good one. Uh, we can tell OSHA violation stories all day long of having your clinic locked down. Uh, you know, so when you when what you would be a common OSHA violation when you when you tell one or two and there's forty thousand of us, it's very easy to just sweep it under the table and go, "Ah, eh, probably won't happen to me," which the reality is it probably won't. But if it does, it's just a really bad thing. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about it. Like the common things you see with OSHA that that people will get dinged for. Yeah, uh, employee injuries uh, in the workplace that will always or almost always initiate some degree of investigation. 
which will then reveal you have none of the required OSHA compliance. Um, uh, dangerous chemicals, uh, those, those are often uh, uh, something that they will randomly um, uh, audit just by investigation because they do random audits just like HIPAA does, just like everybody does. And um, so chemicals and workplace injuries and, and of course OSHA just became a common whole household name in the past year with COVID. Uh, and interestingly enough, in the Biden administration, they're shifting all authority for regulation of the COVID programs to OSHA. So you're gonna be hearing more OSHA instead of CDC. And the reason for that is CDC is not an administrative function of the government. So they have no authority over anything. They're just a recommendation body. OSHA has authority to prosecute. So they've already said, we're going to put OSHA in charge of all this now. Hmm. Hmm. So then, um, well, then tell me about the, um, the things that can be done. Okay. So obviously you help people with HIPAA, you help them with, with uh, OSHA sure. regulations and compliance. What what sort of programs would you help them with to say like okay well this is how you would detect against a uh, young hot girlfriend that's bringing the stepkids in um, how do you protect against that like how do you know what questions to ask how do you know I mean well you know if you're going to be in compliance with anything whether it be HIPAA or whether I'm sure we'll talk about later certain coding regulations mm-hmm. I think you have to educate yourself and you know, no one's going to just implant this into your brain. It, it takes effort. And it's, it, it's back to that thing of this is what doctors have to do now in the new age of being a doctor and nobody likes it, but all this stuff can be protected against with the right education and the right policies in your office. Now you can never protect from crazies. Uh, but if, if you, the interesting thing about most of these regulatory agencies is if you have made a good faith effort to do what they told you to do, bad things typically don't happen. As a matter of fact, we, we can see like, please go sin no more if you actually have made the effort to be in compliance. Uh, but again, it, over 50% haven't. So kind of hanging out. Yeah, we, I've got a buddy who um, manages a, a concrete block uh, business in town and, and they'll just get random OSHA, you know, it's common in oh, those yeah. types of businesses to just get, I mean, it's not like it's expected. So they sort of get these random OSHA and, and then they even go through this protocol. Like they've got their legal counsel that are always there and, and, um, you know, they'll go in and they'll, uh, contest it. So then they'll have other calls with OSHA and all those sorts of things. But, you know, one of these infractions, when we're talking about OSHA or HIPAA, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And the, so then, the, worst, the worst infractions in there, the, the past four years at the administration have been a very non-focused administration on compliance, almost across the board, uh, from a standpoint of CMS, you know, any type of fraud and abuse issues across the board. Um, and the new administration is 180 degrees opposite of that. Hmm. So they have line item budgetary items for infor- investigation enforcement for almost all this stuff. Um, it's a changing of the guard, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So th- the the solutions are out there and people just need to take advantage of the, those. And there's multiple of them. Just work with whoever you want to. But just, people shouldn't try to do this on their own. Yeah. 
when you think about um so that that's an interesting comment i want to kind of dig into that a little bit is this idea of using different regulatory bodies to you know i'll just say recoup dollars uh seems to be an interesting strategy uh yeah. it, it, you know you could you could assign it to a specific political bent but i but i think it's like you said it's just a changing of the guard and whether it's politically driven or not it, you know but um what what other kind of regulations or or things are you seeing is in this shift over the last you know two months um, that that doctors ought to be aware of? Um, as I said, it's going to be across the board. Um, I think we all kind of took a a little bit of a of a breath during COVID because we're getting used to all these emails saying oh, we're calling off this. We're not going to audit anybody. Uh, no one's going to be in, in trouble because all the bad things that are going on, not to make any light of how bad it was at all. But I think we're kind of moving into that phase where people are used to, well, the government's not going to do anything for a while. And mm. the problem is you hit the nail on the head earlier. Why? I mean, these, these programs exist to protect. Um, now, we can say that many of them go dramatically overboard uh, in their intent, but that's the law. Um, but they are cash registers for the government. I mean, HIPAA alone has brought in $14 billion to the government, HIPAA fines. Uh, OSHA fines probably, I, I can't even get the information on it, but I'm sure it's way bigger than that. Um, so in a government that is starving for money, it, I don't even think it's a political decision. I don't think it's a party decision. I just think they realize that we have to get the cash registers clicking again. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting, you know, the CMS statement when they came out and said, we're, we're going to start the audits again, despite any pandemic that happens, because <laughs> they realize that this, you know, it's a source of income that just can't go away. They can't survive without it. So. And it's on our back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of drives us into a conversation about billing. And, and so yeah. well, I, I would say that on the one hand, you know, the information that you have um, is super important. On the other hand, do people, you said, you know, you, you said at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, there are people, people that might, if you have been practiced for 40 years, people aren't going to, there's going to be some cohort of people that don't like you. Anybody get mad at you when you, when you deliver this information to them? Um, not so much get mad at me. Um, I have had comments that, um, literally I had a guy call me the Freddy Krueger of optometry once, um, which at first I was insulted and now I use it in a slide in a promotional manner to say good for me. You know, if, and I, I've taught that, um, there's another HIPAA company run by a guy, we won't go into names, but. His name is Mark and we talk all the time. We're very friendly competitors. And he says the same thing. He said, no doctor is going to do anything except out of a issue of revenue or fear uh, or the, the ethics of being a doctor, okay, which are first and foremost. But outside of that, revenue or fear are the only thing that's going to drive change. And so I haven't really had people get mad at me, but they kind of get upset that i in some degree, intentionally try to scare the pants off of them to try to get them to do the right thing. Um, and that's, that's sometimes the only way you can really affect change. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, I think in the compliance realm, that's really, 
that's really motivating. I think that's probably the right way to to do it. I I see though, and, and I'll throw this out there because in the in the billion coding realm, I think fear uh, often doesn't affect change. I think it actually causes people to to retract a little bit. I'm not saying you do this. I'm just saying that that like if I were to go out there and say, oh, you're gonna fail this audit on a night. If you use nine nine two one four, you're gonna fail this audit. You use a nine nine two one five, you're gonna fail. You should never. Do. Then what what do you think doctors are gonna do? What they do when you look at the data? They're gonna use level twos and level threes, and that's it. I- you know, my, almost every coding lecture I've ever given starts with the, um, you know, number one, coding is not that complicated, which I don't believe it is. Um, now, maybe that's because people like me and you live it, you know, all day long, but I don't think it's all that complicated, especially when you're talking about a single specialty, uh, you know, profession. It's, you know, our world is pretty simple from a, from a coding standpoint, to be honest, in my opinion. Um but I would totally agree with that. Uh, and I, I, I always try to start with, if you just do it right, you will make more money than doing it wrong. And I, I've always felt that if you just follow the rules, unless you want to be a total crook, if you just follow the rules and take care of the patient, the money will follow. And I've always believed that someone told me that very early in my career, and I've believed it ever since. The more you try to manipulate the rules, the more problems that we get into. So I, I agree. I don't try to really use fear as much to get people to do the thing right in coding. I think if, if they will do things the right way, they will absolutely thrive uh, in their reimbursement. But you do have to do it the right way. I mean, that's Oh, there is too. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why, you know, you get, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, the kind of common questions I get will be, well, how can I, how can I bill a nine, nine code with a coronal, corneal form body removal? Yeah. Well, you can, you can't, unless you were attending to something else on that same visit that wasn't yeah. related to the foreign body removal. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's the same stuff. Well, how can I get paid for uh, doing a photo on an optic nerve and an OCT on the optic nerve on the same day? It's like, okay, well, there's, there's, you, you can't just use a modifier in that scenario, but you could, you know, give an ABN, right? And and you can charge the patient. They can pay out of pocket if they decide to, or you can have them back another. I mean, it's like, it's just not that complicated, but, but yeah. it's amazing what people start doing. You know, they'll they'll find these modifiers and they'll find that they get paid from a modifier. And then they think, oh, I got paid. Right. I did it right. Well, you know, that's, as, as you well know, that's some of the most damaging words in all of reimbursement <laughs> is I got paid. Um, that's totally the wrong reason to do anything and leads to a whole lot of trouble. And uh, it's one of the, you know, it's where most of the people, you know, listening are not old enough to remember the Breck commercials, but I, I don't know. I used them. There was a shampoo called Breck and their whole advertising I, thing. I remember was that shampoo. Paid use Breck and told Mary, Mary told blah, 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 blah. And I always use that as that's the way coding misinformation happens too. It's like somebody did it because they got paid because they told somebody because they told somebody. And it always ends up with somebody that just made it up because they got paid. Uh, And that's the source of a lot of misinformation. But rules are rules. Honestly, coding is far less gray than compliance is. Uh, I just don't think there's, you know, people talk about, oh, well, there's all this interpretation. Not so much. Sometimes, sometimes, but not so much. Uh, it's like you mentioned the, uh, you know, the edit against OCT and Fundus Photo. Look, it is what it is. Uh, yep. You 
you try to get around that edit and you run a very high risk of paying the money back because it just is what it is. And I'll say one more thing that a lot of people don't want to hear, but as optometrists, we have to adopt the medical model of insurance pays for some things, patients pay for some things. And we have to get comfortable at checkout with your insurance covered this, your medical insurance covered this, and you're responsible for this. And it's always been baffling to me that, we, that I see that we can't grasp that sometimes because we sure grasp it from the vision plan model of your frame coverage was only $75, but your $700 frame is going to cost you this. It's no different in the medical arena either. Insurance pays for some things, patients pay for some things. And once you determine a patient needs a certain level of care, insurance pays for part of that, patient pays for what the insurance doesn't. And that's nothing new or unique. That's the way medicine works. And almost everybody has gone to the doctor and to an MD something and check out and it's like $200 cash check or credit card. It's just the way the reimbursement system works and always has. It was astute of you to, to mention that because I, I, that's exactly where my mind was going is that, you know, we, we have this as a profession, it's, you know, we, we don't have problems telling a patient that, that their vision plan covered X, Y, and Z, and they didn't cover ABC. But for some reason, it's like, well, I don't, you know, we get this hand wringing of, you know, what if a patient has a high deductible? How do I handle that? What if a patient uh, doesn't come back for a follow-up that I tell them to come back for? It's like, well, what if they don't come back next year and, and they, um, and, and they didn't come back for their routine exam next year? Well, well, you don't care about that. I mean, you care about it, right? You, you foundationally care, but that didn't, that didn't make you not recommend that patient to come back, not yeah. pre-appoint them. Yeah. It, you know, if, if the patient says, look, I've got, I want only what's my, what my vision plan covers. You don't, you know, that might, that might not be what's best for them, but you don't take it personally. But for some reason we take it personally when we're really worried that a patient's, we're going to say, I want to see you back next month to reevaluate your meibomian glands and your ocular surface. And, but, but man, they have a, a $3,000 deductible and, you know, a $75 medical copay. And it's like, yeah, but, but that's the decision they made. Yeah. You, you probably know that there's a, there's a friend of all of a lot of ours, you know, one of his, his big deals in his coding lectures, he makes everybody raise their hand and say, you must learn these words. It's not my fault. You didn't <laughs> pick their insurance, you know, it's not our fault. And that's not, that is in no way being cold hearted or not being a good doctor or anything. It's the way it works. And it's, it's just the way it works. Yeah. And you can be empathetic with a patient. I think that's the other thing is like, if you, if you get good at those conversations, you can say, look, you know, it, it stinks. I mean, you, I always do this. I'm like, I'm like, look, I've got a family of 10 and you know, I know how much insurance costs and I, and I know that, that sometimes it's hard to make decisions. And I understand if, if it's not worth it to you to, to see, you know, see me for this or do this procedure, whatever. Um, but I always, then I'll always say, but look, I'll try to find, I'll try to find other opportunities for us to be able to make you feel better or to solve this problem or find that. And, and so I think like, I just embrace that, you know, for example, it, it's very common. I use this, I use this example often is, you know, it's very common that you'll, you'll write a prescription for, let's say, Restasis or Zydra, and then the insurance company will deny both or require prior authorization or require that you try other things, whatever. Well, why do you think they do that? 
they do that because most doctors are just going to be like, oh, your insurance denied it. See you later. Right. But I think, okay, well, you're going to deny Restasis. Fine. You're going to deny Zydra. Fine. You're going to deny Sequa. Okay. Well, I know that we've got an Impermis in my back pocket that that has uh, Clarity C, right? So I can send that. It's going to be no more than 55 bucks a month. And you know, now you have an option available. Yeah. And and if even if they say, well, $55 a month is too expensive for me. Okay. Well, we have you know doxycycline. We could you know if we're not in Texas, then we need it for more than 10 days, right? We have doxycycline that could control inflammation. And if that if that's contraindicated or the patient doesn't want to take that, well, we could use a topical steroid. But guess what? Who's going to pay for us to monitor that patient as a glaucoma suspect? Because yeah. we're using a higher risk medication. Well, that insurance company. So the bottom line, the, the reason I say all of that is to say that, that like, if you take the approach of like the patients first, we need to solve this patient's problem and I'm on their side, to your yeah. point, then, um, then we will find a way to solve that problem. It may not be the first line treatment or the second line treatment, but we'll find a way that's going to be cost effective um, for them and, and manage their disease state. And that's what other, to your point, that's what other MDs do, right? That's what, what other professionals do. Well, they're, they're brought up from their infant stage that this is the way it works. And it's back to my point of, we need to be brought up from our infant stage that this is the way it works. You know, not to get into legalese terms so much, but the reality is the concept of, of kind of this whole thing is, is very easy and it's ingrained in the medical reimbursement. A physician only has really one function, and that is to perform, is to give um, knowledge to the patient. We provide knowledge to the patient. Ultimately, the patient has the legal right of informed refusal. So we provide informed consent. They provide informed refusal. So the patient always gets to decide, you know, what they want to do. It's just our job to give them those options that we feel is the best care for them. And to get off on a tangent, but I have to say this because I opened my own door. Another thing I see that really gripes me is I provide my advice, which is not very much like what you just described. It's like, you need X. And the patient says, I don't want to do X. Therefore, I divorce you as my patient. Mm. And you know, I've, that's always ground on me a little bit because... I, I, you know, maybe it's ego totally, but I want them to come back to me, even if they refuse, because I know I'm protected. If my medical record says I, I said this, do this. And they said, no, mm. take me to court. Okay. There's no way you win because my medical mm. record says I did the right thing. But if they come back again, I have another shot mm-hmm. to try to tell them, this is what you really need to do. And if they don't, I bring them back. I have another shot to tell them. So what are they going to do, Chris? They're going to go to you and, and you're going to convince them, you know, where I didn't. And, you know, I believe we're all very competent providers and we can communicate this to our patient. The patient always has the authority to say no. Yeah. So you're saying what you're saying is that there are a lot of docs that, that just take the approach. Like if the patient denies my recommendation, I don't that, want you that I don't. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, you go someplace else. Yeah. 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 And and I I think a lot of times they tag that to the fear of liability, which is why I made the comment that as long as we document in our medical record, what we did, we have done our job. Right. And, you know, some lawyer is going to go, oh, well, your medical record is a lie. Well, then they can't do that, really. So if we document, it's all back to that. Here we are back in code, but it's all about the documentation. And if we document correctly, we have done our job as a doctor. Um, and now the patient gets to do their job. 
that I want to hang on to them. You know, I don't want them to go somewhere else. I want to try to convince them to do the right thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think, I mean, that's, that's where you think about the patient first model where you're just like, you know, we're, we know enough about most conditions that we manage that we can know three or four or five different treatment options that are okay. And there's probably an order and there's probably a recommendation that we would think we would make very strongly as the first recommendation. But like, we got to get out of our minds of thinking that patients who don't take those recommendations are really, it's an affront to us or an assault on us. And certainly not to your point about worrying about, you know, the lawsuits that might come from a patient that doesn't take your first recommendation. It's, I mean, you've put it in there and I, I take the same approach as you do is like, even from an audit standpoint, you know, we've been audited as a practice multiple times and, and I've helped a lot of people with audits and you know, it's like, I always tell people, it's like, you don't have to, if you know the rules, like you're saying, if you know the rules of billing and coding and you follow those rules and you document appropriately and somebody audits you, God bless you. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you have to fear? Well, you know, and, it, and it's something you brought up a minute ago and I, and I feel like I dropped it on my end because I know where you were going with, with this about, you know, if they hear horror stories in billing and coding or they think billing and coding is so complex, too many of our colleagues do the response is, I just won't do it. Mm -hmm. I just won't do medical because mm -hmm. I'm afraid or, I, you know, I'm afraid something's going to happen because, you know, they're going to come shut me down because I put the wrong date of service on, on a claim one time. And that's not the mm -hmm. way it works either. You know, it, the whole code, it, as you see, you've been involved with many audits. I, you know, I'm an auditor. That's so, what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I've been involved in a lot of them. Uh, you know, it's it's audit doing the right thing when when people when payers want to come look at you, and I'm going to talk specifically about medical payers because there could be a difference. Medical payers are not on a witch hunt. I mean, they're really not. They're out to see if you're doing things the correct way. And unless you are completely pushing the envelope or totally frauding the system, you don't go to jail. You don't get one of these $800,000 fines levied against you. You may pay a little money back because you did something wrong, but that's not what the system doesn't work that way. Um, so if you do, if you get the knowledge, do the best you can and stay within as best you can, the rules and regulations of the system, sleep at night, yeah. um, but don't avoid doing all that at the, uh, you know, at the consequence of number one, you're not helping your patient. And number two, you're not helping your practice. And that's the only two things that matter at that point. So uh, I, I just, I think we have a, you, you said it a minute ago at the very beginning, we have a huge aversion to our profession embracing medical, you know, care at a very high level. And it, it's a complex problem, but, you know, it, if you just do the right thing, I see no reason to not sleep like a baby at night. You may get looked at. So what? Yep. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so Joe, let me, um, let me kind of wrap this up. So be respectful of your time, you know, tell, tell everybody kind of what, uh, where they can find you. I know that most people know you, but where can they find you if they want to use your services and, and help them help themselves sleep better at night? Where can they find you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Practice Compliance Solutions is a company and it's become an optometry well-known name at this point. Um, 
our website is www.practicecompliancesolutions.com so they can go there and learn all about what we offer. Uh, anyone can email me personally. It's very easy. It's joe at pcscomply or if you can't remember that, it's joe at practicecompliancesolutions.com.